Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Nick Collada, a resident at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Nick completed his first and second year of residency and is now wrapping up his research year. He's originally from Randolph, New Jersey, attended the University of Pennsylvania for college, and completed medical school at Johns Hopkins. He's interested in hand surgery. Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start with kind of a broad overview of your program. Yeah, our program here in Baltimore is a combined program between Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland. Um, It's a seven-year overall program. It's six clinical years plus one research year, although that is... I guess, adjustable on an individual basis. We could talk about that in a little bit. Um, And it covers the entire gamut of reconstructive and aesthetic plastic surgery, um, owing to the fact that we are the only game in town in terms of large academic medical centers offering plastic surgery in the Baltimore metro area. And can you kind of give me a breakdown of how much plastic surgery experience you get across the first few years before you go into the entirely plastic surgery years? Yeah, our program um, underwent uh, a revamping of the curriculum probably about a decade ago at this point. And uh, in our six clinical years, we spend only six months doing uh, dedicated general surgery as interns. So you really have five and a half years of real plastic surgery experience. Um, and they enhanced it even more in the sense that of those general surgery years, uh, some of those rotations are pretty specific to plastic surgery, such as orthopedic surgery, dermatology, and anesthesia. So you really do get only four, three or four months or so um, of true hardcore general surgery. And where are all of your rotations? We rotate through a variety of hospitals. In the junior years, probably clinical years one through three, we're pretty much centered at Johns Hopkins Hospital. The majority of the clinical volume on the general surgery side and then the plastic surgery side is at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, there's a few months spent at Bayview, which is the community arm of Johns Hopkins Hospital, which is just a couple miles down the road where we do burn surgery and another sort of inpatient and hand surgery type rotation. But the majority really is at Johns Hopkins Hospital. As you transition to the second half of the residency, the more senior years, the geographic uh, diversity increases. We have several rotations in the D.C. capital region, um, which includes more outpatient aesthetic, both hospital-based and private practice community-based. We have an opportunity to rotate through Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And then, of course, uh, we spend time over at the University of Maryland and Shock Trauma Center, um, where there is, of course, a heavy volume of trauma, especially face trauma, and then all of the um, nuances of the state university hospital and the patients that come with that. Would you say across those, you get exposure to a pretty broad variety of patient populations? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, at Johns Hopkins Hospital, we get the patients who are flying across the world to see, you know, someone who's a sub, sub, sub specialist in one particular field um, that is either a patient of ours or that we are consulting on to help with. We also have the Children's Hospital there, which is the same sort of arrangement. Patients coming with rare and exotic conditions. Um, so we get the benefit of that. And then across town, we have Shock Trauma Center where we're getting all of the trauma in effectively a three-state radius. Uh, so it's every possible trauma case you could ever imagine is being done. And then we have access to the Baltimore, Washington metro area where we get access to all of the private practice surgeons. And so it offers a, a very diverse 
offering of plastic surgery without having to skimp out on reconstructive versus aesthetic versus pediatric. So going off of that, is there any one area or a few areas of plastic and reconstructive surgery that residents feel like they come out with the most experience in? You know, I think our program is a little bit how you see your own interests and how you want to um, prioritize your time. I think in general, everyone who graduates in our program is extremely competent in hand surgery and microsurgery. As clinical third years, we spend uh, a quarter of the year at the Curtis National Hand Center. You know, that's, uh, I can't think of a, an equivalent training program that gets that level of training in a dedicated hand hospital with world-renowned faculty and fellows. And then combine that with, with the other rotation scheduling I think everyone is very, very, very comfortable with hand surgery. On the microsurgery side, uh, between the University of Maryland and, and downtown Johns Hopkins Hospital, you're starting to do microsurgery uh, clinically as, as a third-year resident. Um, so by the time you get to chief year, the, the workhorse flaps, uh, deep flaps for breast reconstruction, muscle flaps, uh, these are kind of second nature, and, and you're starting to zero in on, on the more exotic or the more specific cases that are coming through the coming through the the in-house services. But that being said, our interim chairman, and we could talk about that in a little bit, is a pediatric plastic surgeon who his entire career is specialized in just cleft reconstruction. Um, so if, if you're someone who wants to be a craniofacial surgeon, you combine that with all the craniofacial trauma, shock trauma, you could come out being the most qualified, comfortable resident in pediatric and craniofacial stuff. But it depends on what you're interested in uh, at that level of granularity. And are there independent residents or fellows at your program? Yes, we do have an independent track. It was reduced from two residents a couple of years ago down to one. So we currently have four independent residents, but two of them will be graduating this year. So we'll be down to just one per year for years four, five, and six. And then in terms of fellows, yes, we do have fellows. The number each year is variable based on funding. Historically, we've had a microsurgery fellow, a craniofacial fellow, and a hand surgery fellow. We just introduced a transgender surgery fellow. Oh, and sorry. And of course, we have three burn fellows that are exclusive to the burn unit. But with this uh, COVID situation, we've had a lot of the the fellowship funding has been uh, rerouted. And so we're in an interesting experiment we'll, where we will only be having the burn fellows and the transgender fellow in this upcoming year. So it'll be very interesting to see how that affects case volumes. I think in the past, uh, the senior residents had an, had an understanding with the fellows that it was uh, a symbiotic learning experience. So I, I've never really heard um, formal complaints that fellows were taking cases or were undermining resident learning. But I guess we'll get some rigid data to understand that as we compare case counts and case experience in the absence of fellows in the upcoming uh, academic year that'll be starting in 2022, 2021. And you already mentioned there is a research year component. Can you talk a little bit about both the research year and also what the research expectations are like outside of the research year? Yeah. I think the first thing I'd like to say is that calling it a research year is probably a little bit outmoded uh, because the year is really a scholastic year in our program. And I say that because our administration gives us a very wide berth to sort of pursue anything that we want as long as it is at least peripherally or tangentially related to plastic surgery. Probably 10 years ago, the majority of people were going into a basic science lab and, and doing kind of what we think of as traditional research. But if you fast forward to contemporary, um, the contemporary scholastic year, you have people going to Stanford to do biodesign programs. Or this year, one of my colleagues is down at the FDA working for a year as one of their plastic surgery device review fellows. 
And so everything in the middle is open and fair game. As long as you can justify how it is advancing your career as a plastic surgeon, uh, the administration, in my experience, has been extremely accommodating to um, non-traditional scholastic and, and enrichment activities. There, of course, is a requirement for some amount of academic research, and it is they expect you to have one publication and one regional or national or international uh, presentation of your data for the year. But beyond that, it's everyone sort of left to their own devices to decide what's going to be best for them in their career. And how about other research opportunities throughout the rest of the training program? Of course, as a program that features a scholastic year, research is, is a huge priority uh, in, the, in the training paradigm here. Every year, there's resident research day where all residents are expected to have something submitted that they'll present in front of the department and the uh, allied specialties. So usually there's people from orthopedics, general surgery, ENT, dermatology, et cetera, who are involved with this and are contributing to the research day. The backbone of our research here is um, the VCA lab, the Allo Transplantation Lab, headed by Dr. Brandecker. There's active research going on for, on the immunomodulation side, you know, so the very, very basic science side into the translational model for face transplant, hand and arm transplant, lower extremity, penis and abdominal wall. Uh, they just started the uterus transplant program. So uh, alloy transplantation is, is a big part of it. And then with Sammy Tufaha coming back from, from fellowship and joining on his faculty, he's restarted the peripheral nerve lab here. Um, so there is a quickly blossoming uh, clinical and basic science research component uh, that focuses on peripheral nerve pathology, regeneration, et cetera. And then, of course, in between all that are, are all the smaller clinical projects that people do with individual attendings, et cetera. So people here are pretty engaged in research. I, I don't think anyone is prioritizing research over their clinical duties, with the exception of the, the scholastic year. But I'd say the vast majority of residents are actively engaged in research, presenting nationally, internationally, um, on a year-to-year -year basis. And are residents able to get support to attend conferences they're presenting at? Typically, yes. I'm not sure how it will be moving forward after coronavirus, um, so I want to put that caveat out there. But between institutional, departmental, or individual faculty funds, there is typically funding to cover most, if not all, of the expenses associated with presenting. Oftentimes, if there is a limitation on funding, um, the more junior residents are the ones who will be um, – more responsible for finding creative ways to fund things. But as you rise through the ranks, uh, the funding is is prioritized to senior residents. Then what's left over uh, is allowed for junior residents. But again, with coronavirus, who knows how the financial situation will change. What kind of opportunities are there for electives, especially in the later years? Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the most impressive aspects of our um, program is the breadth of elective opportunities you have as a as a senior resident. Um, as a chief resident, uh, depending how many chiefs there are per year, you know, this year there's kind of the standard number, but the next year there will be one fewer by the uh, independent resident complement going down. You get anywhere from two to three months of elective that historically you had to be uh, local, meaning that you could drive to Grand Rounds each week. But I think with the advent of people getting really amazing opportunities that are outside of the, the Baltimore, Washington region, that expectation has been relaxed a bit. So that's sort of an evolving process, uh, but certainly those two to three months are, are available for local, if not national, um, electives. In your fourth and fifth year, there's two months of electives spread between those uh, with at least one month in your fifth year, and those can be done anywhere in the world with anyone you want doing anything. Um, you could spend them with research. You could spend them going internationally to do mission trips, uh, but I think the majority of people do it as sort of job or fellowship 
related things, either as the equivalent of an away rotation or um, to showcase their own talents or to learn more about a specific program or practice or something like that. And, and people really do everything possible. Transgender work in in uh, Europe, aesthetic work in Australia, uh, cranial facial work in Southern Europe. These are all things that have been done in the past three years during those senior year electives. And so you mentioned there's an opportunity within electives to go if you have a particular interest in aesthetic surgery. What kind of options are available more so in the curriculum, things like a chief resident clinic? Yeah, we uh, we have something called the resident cosmetic clinic that you have a dedicated three-month block as a chief resident. And each year is a little different because it's up to each chief year to determine how they want to do it. Um, in the past, most people have done it that uh, – the couple months leading up to your dedicated three-month block, you're, you find time off of whatever service you're on to do basically new patient consults um, and then the workup for that. And then during your three months, sure, you're seeing new patients and some follow-ups from your colleagues, but you're mainly doing your operations and seeing the early post-ops from them. And then for the couple months after that, um, you're on another service, but you're, you're finding time to come back and see your post-ops. That's kind of the standard way. I, I know this upcoming year, they were trying to do something new. Um, where they incorporated the PGY-5s into it with the 6s, so that way you could have a, a true longitudinal experience um, in the resident cosmetic clinic. But I, I think there's still some details that are being hashed out with that. As a PGY-5, you do, as I mentioned before, that capital rotation down in basically in the private practices. That's a three-month rotation, which can be all-day, everyday aesthetics, if, if that's what a, a resident is interested in. And I think most of our residents do use it as, as an aesthetic rotation. So there's three more months of aesthetic, and then Johns Hopkins just opened a brand new ambulatory surgery center about 15 minutes outside of the city, which is starting to feature a lot of uh, aesthetic procedures that are being done within the department. And we have rotations through that um, kind of through several years as junior residents. So as the curriculum is evolving, uh, at this point, I think we're up to having nine months of dedicated aesthetic rotations with two or three months as junior residents and the balance as, as senior resident um, and aesthetic. And that number continues to increase as more opportunities become available within the department for aesthetic uh, cases. And you also mentioned within elective, sometimes residents choose to get a more in-depth gender-affirming surgery experience. Can you speak a bit to what the kind of the baseline gender-affirming experience is like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our in-house gender experience is very robust. Uh, one of our recent graduates, Devin Kuhn, came back as faculty uh, and he started the Center for Transgender Health. Um, so he has the plastic surgery component and then there's all the allied health specialties within that as well, <clears throat> including urology. Um, and he offers the full gamut of gender uh, affirming surgery, all from facial feminization to top and bottom surgery. Um and he has an extremely busy practice to the point that he had one gender surgery fellow and then has since hired a second fellow, um, all of whom have attending privileges uh, to enhance the caseload. And my understanding is that they're, they are hiring a second gender affirming surgery attending uh, to be 100% gender affirming surgery, just like Dr. Kuhn is. Um, and so uh, when you are on our A service, he's a three OR day per week surgeon focused fully on gender affirming surgery. Um, and that volume is only increasing. And last I heard, there is a one-year waiting list uh, for these cases. So there is no downturn in sight. Uh, if anything, the volume is just going to continue to augment. Um, so th I think that experience is very unique to our program, that it is so comprehensive and so readily available running the entire gamut of that surgical subspecialty. And is moonlighting possible during the research year or during other times? Yeah, absolutely. 
the bulk of the moonlighting experience is during the scholastic year. Uh, and in the city, there's four different opportunities that, that have kind of been passed down through the years that range all the way from home call, where you kind of only go into case, for cases, all the way up to in-house, the equivalent of junior resident call. And there's an opportunity to make significant money uh, in the scholastic year moonlighting. At least 90% of residents choose to moonlight during the scholastic year. And it offers a great extra source of income to fund those uh, long weekend trips that you get to take during the year off. And are there any other awesome perks about your program you'd like to share? Yeah. Uh, so if when you start as an intern, you have uh, you go into a book fund, but it's meant to be used to get loops. I think the number varies every year between a thousand and twelve fifty each year for you to spend on whatever loop company you want, whatever design you'd like. That is a very generous perk of the program. And then each year there is there's a book fund as well. It's it's less than that, but it's meant to provide for educational materials. You know, this year I think a lot of people are using it for, you know, the, the pay for registration Zoom webinars. But uh and that number varies kind of depending on the the money that came in during that fiscal year. We uh certainly get food stipends uh for every in-house call you take at the various hospitals, you get money put on your little card, uh, which is extremely convenient especially when you're at the lower end of the salary range as a junior resident. And by virtue of being one of the founding institutions of the Duke Hopkins flap course, whenever that course happens, uh, we kind of get first dibs on our choice of spots in that. And it's really unique that some of our mid-level residents even get to go to that. Usually in the past, it's only been very senior residents. But with the, with the expansion of new faculty and the increase in cadaver space, just the logistics of the program have allowed even more junior residents to get involved. And I think that's a really unique component of our program. That is what enables us to be able to be clinically ready to be doing microsurgical cases as, as you know, third and fourth year residents and really being an integral part of those cases is that we get this amazing experience uh, via that, the Duke Hopkins flap course. Now, transitioning a bit, you briefly mentioned your chief before, but I'd love to hear a bit more about the current chief, program director, and any other notable faculty you get to work with. Yeah, of course. Program leadership right now. Dr. Redette is the interim chairman of the department after Dr. Lee um, left about a year ago at this point. The coronavirus sort of set back the whole uh, new chairman search, but uh, that just restarted recently. We've been going to the Zoom meetings with, with the candidates. Um, they, uh, the search committee has five outstanding international experts in plastic surgery um, who are interviewing for the job. I don't think they've told us when a date would be for the selection of, of who, the, who the new chairperson will be. But we would expect it probably in the next several months, seeing as everyone has had their opportunity to interview at this point. So we're a bit in flux there, but I think uh, there's certainly reason to be optimistic as we get back into this, the full uh, swing of things after coronavirus, bringing in new leadership, and then the exciting possibilities that come with that in terms of new funding and then the new faculty that typically come with uh, a new chair, I think sets us up very nicely for the future. In terms of our program director, it's Scott Lifshay. Uh, he is a hand surgeon over, and he's mainly over at our Bayview campus. He's been our program director probably for about 10 years. So he is very comfortable in the position. He has uh, an incredible working relationship with, with the residents. And I know that he just started as some new highfalutin position with ACAPS. It's hard to keep up with all the titles that these people have. Um, but I say all in all, the thing that, about our leadership that is most impressive to me is that they understand that this is a residency for residents. It's not a residency for the benefit of the attendings. And I think that level of understanding goes a really long way to making sure that all of the small nitty gritty details of the program are kind of bend in the residents' favor for our education. Um, you know, a good example of that is we came back to them and said, hey, now that you're expanding our cadre of attendings, there's going to be a lot of scut work that needs to be done. It's putting a big burden on our junior residents. 
instead of them telling us to work harder or figure it out, they went out and they prioritized and they hired two new PAs who are our full-time, just to our service, inpatient PAs that hold the floor pagers, take care of all the all the social work and discharge planning, case management and such. And they responded very quickly. You know, that was a matter of months that we went from, you know, lodging this uh, concern with them to it being resolved in, in a really uh, productive way. And, and I think they deserve all the credit in the world for recognizing that the residency program is for the benefit of training plastic surgeons. And I'm not familiar with any other program that that is able to uh, have that level of engagement with their residents and responsiveness. And now shifting a little bit more to the relationships amongst the residents, how would you describe the culture of the program from that perspective? I think, um, you know, now being in the in this class year, I think I'm a little biased, but, uh, you know, there's certainly been a, a huge opportunity to create even closer bonds with the people in my year by virtue of us all having this year of free-ish time together. So first and foremost, that, that's been an incredible opportunity to get to know people outside of work. And, you know, you spend 80 hours a week with each other for two years, but now you get to socialize. That's really an amazing part of it. I would say overall, there is a really impressive collegiality between the senior and the junior residents because there is such an emphasis on education coming from the senior residents to the junior residents as opposed to from the fellows or the faculty that junior residents just by design of the program work very closely with the senior residents from very early on. Um, and I think that there's a level of, of trust and respect and admiration that morphs into true organic friendships. One of our senior residents was a groomsman in my wedding because I just developed such a close relationship with him from early on intern year that has just you know grown since then. I know that is similar for other people in the program. We spend a lot of time outside of our job hanging out with each other. You know, every month we have something called a final Friday, which I'll shout out to uh, one of our residents, Akash Chandawarkar, who organizes this. And it, you know, it includes a newsletter that highlights all the amazing accomplishments of the residents for that year, both professional and personal, uh, sorry, for that month. And then we all get together at a bar and we do happy hour and an informal dinner. It gives everyone a chance to decompress and just socialize as opposed to be doing consults and cases and rounding with each other. And beyond that, uh, our faculty do really go out of their way to try to integrate themselves into our lives as people, not just as physicians. We have family-friendly events at least quarterly. You know, one of the one that comes to mind is Dr. Broderick hosts a uh, Cinco de Mayo party at her house that has, you know, kids-appropriate things and also adult-appropriate things. Uh, you know, her margaritas are pretty on point. It really does have a family feel uh, when you can have events like that, you know, hosting the residency interviews at Dr. Ritzet's house as opposed to at a restaurant or a bar. It really gives you a cozy feeling to the people you spend so many hours with. And it's just uplifting when you're going through these tough times in residency. What's kind of the breakdown across residents in terms of people that are married and have families and have kids or those that are single? Up to and including the scholastic year, probably 50% of people are unmarried and 50% of people are married. Uh, and then after the scholastic year, it's probably like 75% are married and 25% are, are not married at that point. Um, of course, as you get higher up in the in the residency years, you know, the majority of people who are married do have children. I would say that there's not an overwhelming bias towards people married with kids or an overwhelming bias to the single crowd. I think it's a nice mix. And, and there is certainly uh, an understanding of people who are married and have kids have slightly different priorities, at, you know, in terms of their schedules. And so I think that there is a, a lot of understanding for that. But it's not like there's a, a crazy bias for or against those people. And a bit about the logistics of how residents live. Do most people own or rent? In Baltimore, I would say probably 50-50. Baltimore is a very, very affordable city. Um, and it's a city of row homes, 
for lack of a better term. So a lot of people will rent maybe for their first six months to a year, um, either an apartment or a row home, and then many people will go on to purchase. And I'd say probably two-thirds of people purchase within the city, and of the people who purchase, two-thirds purchase within the city, and one-third purchase, you know, in the surrounding suburbs, you know, probably within a 15 to 20-minute drive to the, to the main hospital, um, with stuff in the city being a 10 to 15-minute drive. But, you know, uh, with the advent of all of these unique financing opportunities for young physicians in training, combined with the fact that Baltimore is, is an affordable city with very generous tax credits for property owners, um, there is very much an opportunity to purchase land or, if you don't want to do that, a condo uh, or an apartment if you want to. And is it necessary to have a car? I think that it would be very difficult to do residency here without a car. Uh, as a junior resident, you could probably... Uh, get away without a car, especially if you live close to the hospital. But after probably your second clinical year, it would be pretty difficult to get to some of the less conveniently located residency sites, especially with these ambulatory surgery centers opening. You know, walking or biking, uh, and especially public transportation, would probably not be optimal modes of transportation. And you already mentioned, you know, Baltimore is a very affordable place to live. What are some of the other things you like about living there? So I've been here now uh, coming up on seven years between medical school and residency, so I feel pretty qualified to have an opinion on this city. You know, like I said, it's affordable. And as a resident, when you're not making that much money, you don't have that much time to go out and enjoy the city that you're living in, it's really nice to know that you can go out to a more upscale restaurant and it's accessible in terms of being able to get a table. It's accessible in terms of the cost. And and so I, I can't speak enough to, to the benefits of living in an affordable city. In terms of other things, uh, you know, Baltimore is growing rapidly in its reputation as a food and beverage city. I am not personally a foodie. I kind of go to my same restaurants that I know and love. Uh, but my colleagues who are have a lot of wonderful things to say about kind of the small hole-in-the-wall places that are bringing in a lot of new ethnic and sort of fusion types of flavors. It's kind of this diaspora down from Philadelphia, New York, and up from Washington, D.C. that's pushing this. Now, fingers crossed that with coronavirus, it hasn't put some of these small restaurateurs out of business. But, you know, that being said, that, that is certainly a growing sect of the city. Baltimore is a city with a lot of pride in the sports teams, especially, you know, the Ravens that speaks for themselves. They've had some success in recent years and the city revolves around the purple and black. You know, Sunday is like, it's like everyone goes to the church of the Ravens. You know, the Orioles have been a little down their luck, but, you know, it being an affordable city, it's easy for people to walk across town and go, uh, go to a ball game, see the Orioles. People are still very proud of the O's. All the bars run their own specials and restaurants, et cetera. Um, so sports is is a big focus here, and I'll put in a little pitch for golf. A lot of excellent golf courses here. Three of the top 100 in the country are in Maryland, two of which are within driving distance. So for all the golfers out there, this is a golfer-friendly city. And then in addition to uh, the sports stuff, Baltimore is a pretty small city. So within 20 minutes, you can be out in state parks, hiking, rafting, canoeing, fishing, picnicking, uh, you know, playing with your kids in parks if that's, uh, you know, any of those things appeal to you. Um, so it gives you the benefits of a large city, but also the accessibility to various places that comes with a small city. I think that was most of what I wanted to cover. Um, do you have any final thoughts on either your program or on the process of choosing a residency program? Well, we could talk for hours about the ins and outs of a residency program. You know, there's there's so much that goes into training physicians and, and the lifestyle with that and then the outwork components. Um, so just in general, I'd say I, I I was very satisfied with my selection of, of residency. I I think pretty much everyone in our program would say the same thing. And yeah, it, it's a big life decision. You have to take into account all of the aspects that go into it, both work and non-work related. 
But um, if anyone listening has questions or wants to learn more about the program, you can certainly feel free to reach out to me or I'll, I'll go on a limb and speak for my colleagues and say we're all welcome to speak to people, especially with this unique situation the upcoming year with away rotations being difficult and interviews possibly being done virtually. We're always here to talk about the program. We'll give you our honest feedback on uh, pros and cons and things like that. But at the end of the day, follow your gut feeling and um, you will very likely bloom where you are planted. So thank you so much for speaking with me today, Nick. I really enjoyed talking to you and I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jenna. I think this is a great idea and I hope uh, all the folks out there listening find it helpful as well. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's drity.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.